0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, take a closer look at how Tucsonans voted in the last local election. Find out about an educational collaboration that's promoting awareness of the Sonoran Desert's bee diversity. The 8990 trip continues in Utah as a daughter takes her 90-year-old father north on US Highway 89 to revisit the memories of a lifetime. And a preview of Tilly the Trickster, a new family musical at Live Theatre Workshop. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The Tucson city election this month will mean a new mayor and some new city council members. It also meant Tucson isn't officially a sanctuary city for immigrants. The AZPM News team analyzed the election results by making a map of the city that reflects how residents voted. To explain, Nick O'Gara joins me now. Nick, tell us, what does this map show us about the mayoral election?
1: The general results of the mayoral election were pretty clear early on. Uh, We had Democrat Regina Romero with almost 56%, independent Ed Ackerley with around 39%, and the Green Party's Mike Cease with about 4%. Um, but in the newsroom, we wanted to see how does that lay out over the city. And so when you look at the results, what shows up is this vertical line going through the city uh, that shows a really clear east and west divide. And so west of this line, which happens to be Wilmot Road, uh, we see a lot of support for Romero. And east of that line, uh, you see most precincts going for Ackerley. So I think people might find that interesting when they're looking at this. And the map designates those who voted for Ackerley with the color orange. And the orange area actually looks larger,
0: but we can assume that that has less population
1: density. If you're looking at it, it's also you're you're going to want to take into account these are just precincts that voted mostly in favor. So in some cases, these are close races, right? We're not saying that it's everybody has voted in favor, but uh, it does really kind of point out a pattern. There's kind of this east-west division in terms of how the mayoral race turned out this year. I know that you and
0: Jake Steinberg worked on this map together, and I'd like to know where the data originated from. How did we get the statistics that were used to uh, create these maps?
1: Yeah, we basically took geographic data, so in the form of precincts, we found that through the county and the city. Uh, And then we were sort of waiting around to see when the city clerk's office, because the city ran the election this year, just when they released their official results, we took those and plugged them in to kind of see what was going on across the city.
0: As far as Prop 205, which was about Tucson's future as a sanctuary city, uh, how did the geographic distinctions work out there?
1: Proposition 205 was rejected by nearly 70% of people who voted on it. Uh, So the general result was, was pretty clear early on. Um, And it didn't necessarily follow that same east-west divide that we saw in the mayoral race. But what you do see is for voter precincts that supported it, you see this kind of island uh, hovering over downtown and uh, the university area. So these are voter precincts that had more votes in favor, but they are surrounded, again, in the rest of the city by precincts that rejected the measure. Nick, what is something else that a user could gain from uh, looking at the data on this map? We've included some information about voter turnout, which might be interesting to some people. There was nearly 40% of registered voters cast a ballot, and that's just over 100,000 people. But if you look at it too, you see some sort of interesting patterns in voter turnout. There's definitely this sort of north-south division happening, so once you start getting south of downtown, we see lower voter turnout. And this isn't sheer numbers, but this is sort of percent of people who are registered um, casting a ballot. And you also see a little bit stronger voter turnout going east. Well, thank you for looking over these numbers, Nick. Uh, where can our listeners find the map? You can find it on our news page. That's news.azpm.org. Uh, and you can also find it on uh, the Spotlight page as well. And that is at azpm.org. Thanks for your time and for doing the research on this. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Bees are some of the most important creatures on our planet, usually characterized as being hardworking and busy, and the Sonoran Desert is home to more than 700 species. Local students have an opportunity to learn about this remarkable diversity as part of the Tucson Bee Collaborative, and they'll help with research designed to improve the students' skills in science, technology, engineering, and math. Tony Paniagua talked with collaborative members Wendy Moore, an associate professor with the UA's Department of Entomology, Jennifer Katcher, a biology professor at Pima Community College, and Katie Stout, a
2: University of Arizona undergraduate, about their work. Let's begin with you, Wendy. What is the Tucson Collaborative all about?
3: The Tucson Bee Collaborative is a new multi-institutional effort um, that involves the U of A, Pima Community College, and the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. Um, We're all working together to increase our knowledge and appreciation of native bees because we live in one of the biodiversity hotspots of the world for native bees. There's more species of native bees here than it may be anywhere else in the world. And um, as the curator of the University of Arizona Insect Collection, uh, one of my goals is to have our collection reflect that native diversity so that we have uh, representatives of all of those species And I'd like to also grow it to also include identification tools, because some of these species are very difficult to identify morphologically. And by um, using part of the genome, which we call the DNA barcode region of the genome, we can use that unique signature of DNA to help us identify species.
2: If you could just explain it as easily as possible for those of us who are not scientists.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, it's just focusing in on certain areas of the genome that are standardized among all animals or all plants, whatever it is you're barcoding. <laughs> and you amplify and then sequence that region and create a reference library of expert identified sequences that are tied to those those sequences, and then you can take unknowns and compare that to your reference library and get species names on specimens that would otherwise take years, maybe a lifetime of skills to hone to know what morphological or structural characters are defining that species. So it really puts the power of identification into the hands of anyone who knows these biotech
4: skills.
2: Jennifer, so you're with Pima Community College. And how did you become involved in this program with the University of Arizona and others?
4: Well, I teach uh, introductory biology. And one of the skill sets we teach are some introductory biotechnology skills. And this process of DNA barcoding teaches some pretty useful skills. And I was looking for an authentic research experience for my students to engage in where they could use these skills. So I thought, who could really use some species identified through DNA barcoding? And I thought that entomologists probably would be a good bet because they often have a lot of species and not a lot of person power to identify them.
2: Katie, you were a student at Pima Community College. When did you get involved in this organization or this group?
5: I was in Jennifer's class back in 2017. And so it was one of our big... Research lab, or I guess just a regular lab that we were doing um, at the time to do the barcoding on the insects for one of our lab reports. Um, But I thought it was something that was actually really cool because it it taught us how to do things that people in the real world do. So um, learning the different techniques for barcoding and how to identify species and learning what all of that means was really exciting.
2: So why do you like working with bees and other insects and just nature in general?
5: So, I've, I grew up in Sonora National Forest, so um, I was always outside. I'm not afraid of bugs. Um, and so, when I needed a lab here at the university for my degree, I reached out to Wendy um, and started working in her lab. And at first, I wasn't sure if insects was really something that I was into. Um, but now, working with the bee collaborative and working towards something that's making a difference, it, it makes it even more enjoyable.
2: And Jennifer, what is making this possible? We were talking ahead of this interview about a grant that's being provided.
4: Yes. So the National Science Foundation uh, awarded us a grant uh, for about $300,000. Pima Community College is the lead institution on that, uh, and we're collaborating with um, the U of A as well. And this Grant actually, what it allows us to do is to look at the educational benefits for the two-year students. Students at community college rarely have opportunities to engage in authentic research, Uh, but we know that participating in real research helps students to develop their identity as a scientist. They can see themselves as scientists, they're participating in science, and this helps them to persist uh, be more likely to complete their studies. So the project allows us to actually compare groups of students that are going through the barcoding project uh, versus not and see if it helps them long term.
2: So far, how many students have been able to participate, and how many do you think will ultimately become part of this program?
4: So we've been doing this project for, this is our fifth semester, and we've had uh, 78 students that have participated. And out of those students, we've had 28 students that were the very first to publish the DNA sequence of a particular insect in Arizona. So not only are they contributing to science, but they're the very first to publish that DNA sequence. That is fantastic. It's really exciting for the students, and it's really exciting for the researchers. And what really makes this collaboration work is that uh, the researchers from the U of A and the Desert Museum come uh, come to Pima, explain to the students how the work that the students are doing impacts the research that the researchers are doing. So the students really understand the contribution that they're making.
2: And Katie, moving forward, what do you think you're going to end up doing? Have you decided? or Has this helped you perhaps decide what to do or not to do?
5: It's definitely given me a new perspective of things that I can do. Um, I haven't decided specifically what I want to do yet, but it definitely is up in the running.
2: (laughs) Very good. Well, congratulations to you and good luck in your future. And then before we go, Wendy?
3: i like to also just say that I think one of the reasons that this Be Collaborative is so exciting is that we're, the people that are involved are all really excellent at what they do, and um, and they have collaborative hearts. We all feel like... We want to fight something like the, we call the nature deficit disorder, which is uh, a lack of students getting out into the environment and seeing where they live and understanding what a great place this is to live. And um, so many different organisms live here. And the University of Arizona Insect Collection has 2 million specimens and 35,000 species of um, insects that are open to the public to come and see and appreciate these little things that are actually running the world.
2: Wendy Moore with the University of Arizona, Katie Stout, a student here at the university, and Jennifer Katcher with Pima Community College. Thank you very much and good luck to all of you.
3: Thank Thank you. You
0: You can find a link to connect with the Tucson Bee Collaborative on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Have you ever been to Pangwich, Utah? That's the starting point for this week's installment of the 8990 trip. In this series, we follow Lisa Schneble Heidinger and her father, Larry Schnebley, on a road trip inspired by his 90th birthday party. Before he retired in 1994, Larry was a well known radio and TV broadcaster. His grandparents pioneered the area that is now Sedona, and that was his grandmother's name. Larry said the only thing on his bucket list was to drive up U.S. Route 89 all the way to the Canadian border, revisiting many places that he's known since childhood. The journey would take the Schnebleys more than 3,000 miles round trip, and for Larry, through almost 90 years of memories.
6: U.S. 89-90 trip, day three, dateline, Panguitch, Utah.
7: Good morning on day three. Believe it or not, this isn't Larry's first breakfast at a Main Street cafe in Pangwich. That took place about 80 years ago.
6: Martha Slater was the daughter of a family with whom my father had lived in Cleveland or Cincinnati, Ohio, during World War I. And Martha came west when she was 18 on a kind of a train trip before she started college, and it included a stop at Parks where we were living at the time. And Martha, I thought was pretty sensational. I was probably 10 or 11 and she was 18. And the fact that we were to take her back up to Salt Lake City to get on board a train that would take her directly home was all in my favor because I got to travel Highway 89 again before I was a student at Wasatch Academy. But we stopped in Pangwich, and Martha ordered a cantaloupe, half cantaloupe, with a scoop of vanilla ice cream in it, which I thought was pretty sophisticated. So I asked my father if I could have the same thing And normally I did not get to eat any such trash. So when he said yes, I was pleasantly, and I think visibly I would think surprised, at least I was surprised.
7: Today we're stopping in Mount Pleasant. I've heard of, but never seen, Wasatch Academy, where Daddy went to boarding school. Since his father was also his school teacher, and had skipped him ahead in grades, he was only 11 when he came as a freshman. We go to see his first dorm, which reminded him of his roommate.
6: Billy Dixon was from Big Piney, Wyoming, and he had been here one year before, so he knew everything, and I didn't know anything.
7: We visit the dining hall. Still big tables, but it's pretty unstructured compared to how it was back then.
6: We had a table with... 10 students and a faculty member, a senior person, sitting at the head. And that person was responsible for teaching good manners and saying the prayer to start each meal.
7: Being here reminds Larry of getting his first allowance.
6: Oh, the 50 cent allowance it was a lot of money, it seemed to me, because I'd never had an allowance before. of it went to shipping laundry home in a suitcase-sized box made of Bakelite, and she would send my laundry back to me. And with the remaining $0.25, I would go to a movie and buy a $0.10 ice cream cone. And we could do both of those things and still save two or three cents at least out of each allowance. And I used that to buy my mom a Christmas present.
7: After a pie and coffee lunch, we drive to Salt Lake City and are able to park at Temple Square. The golden statue of Moroni on top of the temple shines even brighter against a dull gray sky that's been raining off and on all day. Because so much of Arizona history includes Mormon history, it's fun to see Temple Square and some of the statues of the church founders. I never thought I'd see better landscaped gardens than Disneyland's, but these are truly exquisite. It's been a long day's drive, and the square buildings close shortly after we arrive. We push on to Ogden for the night. We find a hotel that almost doesn't work because there's no in-room coffee and i will be up hours before the lobby opens at 6:30 a.m. finally they figure out the night manager can start the coffee at 4 in the morning all good good night
0: the 8990 trip will take a break next week for thanksgiving when it returns on december 5th larry and lisa will cross into wyoming to spend a day at yellowstone national park You can read Lisa Schnebley Heidinger's travel diary and see photos from the journey on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Molly Shannon became well-known during her six seasons on NBC's Saturday Night Live. After leaving the show in 2001, she started a family and a new career as a children's book author. The musical Tilly the Trickster is based on Shannon's first book, and it's being staged this holiday season by the live theater workshop in Tucson. I talked with lead actor Samantha Cormier and director Richard Gremmel about what makes a play a good candidate for the workshop's family theater series.
8: Can you execute one of your excessively formidable pranks right now? Now, now, guys! A trickster can't be trick 24 twenty-four, seven. A trickster cannot trickstilate on demand, please! A trickster will trickstantiate when you least expect.
9: Really, for a long time, it's been a mission to have families be at the forefront of theater and have theater accessible for families. And live theater is just really doing a great job of making theater accessible to as many different kids as they can, going into schools, having shows at the theater for kids to come see, and make it so that families have a chance to come see theater and and experience it in a new way.
0: Well, when you say make it accessible, some people may question whether that has a lot of artistic value. I mean, really, what's foremost on your mind when you talk about accessibility for all ages?
9: Putting a good product together, but having moments for each member of the family to sort of cling on to. I think having a show that has physicality for the kids who maybe don't see all or understand all the language that's happening, but see the physical nature of the theater. Um, Having some language and jokes that are there for the kids who are starting to pick up on the language but aren't fully understanding the whole broad story yet and then having a great story for the parents and stuff to hang on to and i think as the kids get older they sort of grow into each one of those parts this show in particular has those elements but a lot of the shows that we're doing at live theater have those elements built in
0: Samantha, welcome. Hi. It's nice to see you again. I nice know that see you. you have been in several live theater workshop productions, both main stage and family theater. Do you make a difference between them? Is there something inherently different about your approach?
8: Children love honesty in the character. They love to see things that they can relate to. And I do both. I, I play for the children, but I also play for the family too, like Richard's saying, bringing in the mom and the dad. I mean... We need to get them to the theater, too. And then we want them to be entertained the whole hour as well, you know, not just be like oh, another boring children's play. But there's moments where it's like, oh, my goodness, that happens in our family. Oh, my daughter does that. I do that, you know, those you know little things. And where I'm doing children's theater, the energy is extreme. If I'm not sweating at the end of a rehearsal, I'm doing something wrong. You know, it's, it's all energy. It's. I'm acting with my fingertips, you know, when I'm doing children's theater and it's just so much fun to reach out to children, you know, seeing them and breaking that fourth wall and you know, and that's why I love live theater so much is because of the intimate space and Richard's a great director in a sense of how can we bring the audience into this to the storyline too and relate it.
0: Okay, so now each of you tell me about Tilly the Trickster.
9: Well, it really tells the story of a girl who just has a f- fun time playing tricks on everyone
8: and learning when she goes too far and learning a lesson
3: we're the worst parents in the world yes we are i knew we couldn't do this all along you were right
9: we did the best we could we weren't any good away As soon as uh, my wife Amanda brought the script home and she said, we've got to sit down and read this, we instantly connected with the mom and dad and felt like this is us. This is so relatable, I think, to to parents because it's like that when you're asking your kid to put on their shoes for the hundredth time and the other kids you are trying to get cleaned up and ready for school and you're all trying to get out of the house in the morning and it's just all this chaos and you just have to think, man, this stinks, but then you really step back and look at it and go like, well, I wouldn't change it for anything. And I think this play has done a really great job of highlighting and really connecting with families and parents in that aspect. I think a lot of parents are going to come watch the show and go, this is totally our family.
0: Well, Samantha, tell us something about your character. Who Who is she?
8: Um, the Trickster, actually, she is my niece, Olive. <laughs> <laughs> she's also a little based on Sawyer, Richard, and uh, Amanda's daughter, who I know. But my niece, Olive, actually does this thing where she she's getting better at pranking, but she tells me before she pranks me. She goes, Aunt Sammy, I'm going to prank you. I'm like, okay, kid. <laughs> she's full of life, and she's so full of love, but she has this mysterious side of her, and she's complex. You can relate to and I still relate to. I don't have kids of my own. Maybe it's because I am just a big kid. Probably why I got cast in this role. But I work with a lot of children. I'm an instructor and I am a teacher. And reading this book, I'm like, I've had that student, I, you know, so I can base them with a lot of the kids I have in my life, which is really great.
9: Yeah, and even though it's like a small space, I really have approached it in a big musical sense. So I direct big musical every year. I teach at Empire High School and I I get 70 kids on stage and we do this big musical, big dance numbers. And I've taken that sort of same approach to the show, even though there's only six cast members and this little tiny stage that I've really tried to, to bring in that aspect of the big musical feel, but in this tiny, intimate space.
0: Well, Richard and Samantha, no trick, break a leg. Thank you. Tilly the Trickster runs from November 29th to December 28th at the Live Theater Workshop at 5317 East Speedway. Performances are Friday and Saturday evenings at 7 p.m., and Saturday and Sunday afternoons at 3 p.m. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.